0: All right, good morning, church. How are you? Today we finished the Gospel of Mark, our last study in the Gospel of Mark. I think we posted on our uh, Instagram that it was my last study in the First Serve series, and people started getting excited because they thought it was the last time I would ever be here. So always makes you feel good on a Sunday morning to see what's happening. So anyway... Um, that's only partially true. Mark 16 is our text, verses 9 through 20. You want to open your Bibles there so you can follow along or navigate on your device. Oh, by the way, that's what I was supposed to remember. We have somebody's Apple iPhone over in the bookstore. Oh, no, it's yours? Okay. So we don't have it anymore? Did we, did we get everything off of it that we needed? <laughs> Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, the topic, the risen Lord gives his followers the great commission to go into all the world preaching the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. The title of our message, then I saw his face, now I am a believer. (laughs) It's going to be one of those mornings, I can tell you that right now. I might sing that for you later. Uh, Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us together. Um, We love you. This is a divine appointment that you've made for us and prompted us to keep, and so here we are. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak into our hearts all the truth we're able to bear today, and that Jesus would be so much more real to us than he ever has been before. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Those who agreed said, amen. Although he first appeared way back in 1954 before I was born and hasn't been in the Daily Comics since the year 2000, thanks to the recent Peanuts movie, all of us know Pigpen as the boy who has the cloud of dust and dirt constantly following him. Charlie Brown once analyzed the cloud saying, don't think of it as dust. Think of it as maybe the soil of some great past civilization. Maybe the soil of ancient Babylon, it staggers the imagination. He may be carrying soil that was trod upon by Solomon or even Nebuchadnezzar. Soon it's going to be time to watch It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. It's celebrating its 50th anniversary. Some of you saw it for the first time. I know I did, and I've seen it hundreds of times since then. It just gets better and better. Pigpen thinks he'll be disguised by his Halloween costume, but he is immediately recognized wherever he goes. The cloud following him gives his identity away. Now, in these closing words of the Gospel of Mark, we are told of things that followed the first believers as they went out into the world. Is there something following you that gives you away? It's one of the themes that we're going to explore. These verses also discuss things that can foil us, and by that I mean things that can hinder or hamper our sharing of the Lord. I'll organize my thoughts around two questions directed to believers. Number one, is there something foiling your belief in Jesus? And number two, is there something following your belief in Jesus? First of all, what hinders and hampers in verses 9 through 14? If you have the NIV Bible, the non-inspired version, you'll notice that you'll notice that the translators set apart verses 9 through 20 with a special footnote. In the Revised Standard Version, the RSV, verses 9 through 20 are printed in the margin of the Bible. What's up with that? Well, there's a scholarly controversy about whether these verses were originally part of the Gospel of Mark. ...or if they were later added to the manuscripts. Modern translations of the Bible suggest the gospel ends with verse 8... ...and then acknowledge the disputed existence of what has come to be called... ...the longer ending of verses 9 through 20. The major concern, and it's a valid concern, is this. Two of the oldest existing Greek manuscripts... ...dated from 325 and 340 A.D. respectively do not contain the longer ending of verses 9 through 20. Neither do about a hundred other ancient manuscripts that have been translated into other languages. On the other hand, the overwhelming majority of manuscripts we have do contain these verses. So the question for us becomes this, should we teach these verses as inspired? Well, what decided it for me is that many very early Christian writers refer to this passage in their writings, which shows that the first Christians knew that it was there and they accepted it as inspired. The Gospel of Mark was written somewhere between 65 and 75 AD. Not too long after, it was being quoted by some of the following men. Papias, who was the bishop of Hierapolis... He referred to verse 18, writing around 100 A.D. Justin Martyr, known as an early apologist, quoted verse 20 in 151 A.D. Irenaeus, a bishop in Gaul, quoted verse 13 in 180 A.D. And then there are several others that we could cite who quoted from this section as if it were received by the early church as the inspired word of God. Additionally... The manuscripts which omit the verses often leave space where they should be, indicating the copyists knew there was a longer ending to the book, but for some reason didn't have it. There is no good reason to overlook them. We accept them based on the testimony of the earliest Christians and other arguments. Now, if you want to be controversial, a lot of young preachers do, and say that these verses should not be in the Bible and therefore should not be taught as inspired... Please at least admit that nothing they say contradicts anything else in the Word of God. And so there's really no good, valid reason to ignore them or to overlook them. And so let's get into it. Verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. Now Mary had already come to the tomb once that morning, and upon finding it empty, she ran to tell the disciples... John outran Peter to the tomb, but waited outside while Peter went in. Mary had followed them back. They left, but she remained at the tomb. And as a result, she was the first person to see the resurrected Lord when he suddenly appeared to her. This is the fourth mention of Mary by Mark, but he has waited until now to mention that she had previously been possessed by seven demons. Now, I would have done that right from the beginning, but Mark saves this to the end, prompting us to ask why. Well, we can't say for sure, but it's clear that Mark is ending the gospel he wrote on a warfare footing. Mary is a reminder that Jesus came to defeat the devil and that he did defeat him. We need this reminding because post-resurrection, the devil still goes about like a roaring lion seeking to devour people. He is still the God of this world. He is still the ruler of this world. He is still the prince of the power of the air. He is the leader of malevolent principalities and powers. We will be engaged in spiritual warfare against him until Jesus returns. But because of this, Reminder that Mary had demons and now she doesn't, we have the advantage of knowing we serve the one who has defeated the devil and who is returning one day to finalize the victory. And so the mention of the devils now uh, being cast out of her is a strong reminder to you and I that during this warfare period, we have the Lord's power. Verse 10, she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, They did not believe. It's been said that the first non-believers were the believers. Jesus had repeatedly told them over the last six months of his ministry that he would be crucified and then he would rise from the dead on the third day. They had been to an empty tomb and now they had eyewitness testimony from a credible source but they refused to believe Jesus was risen from the dead. People sometimes accuse Christians of having blind faith. But disbelief is a much more prevalent and powerful entity. The average non-Christian has to ignore tons of valid evidence that Jesus Christ is alive today. And they just simply disbelieve. The empty tomb, none of the theories that have ever been postulated make any sense. And then they have the lives of multiplied millions of individuals who have been transformed Uh, coming out of the kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light, and yet they say, I don't believe in Jesus Christ. Disbelief is a powerful thing. Verse 12, after that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. They went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Now, these two are the famous disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus hid his true identity from them, asked them why they were so sad, and then gave them a Bible study pointing out everywhere in the scriptures where the suffering of the Savior was predicted. When he went into their house and broke bread with them, they realized it was the Lord. He disappeared, but they ran back to tell the disciples Jesus had appeared to them. But they did not believe them either. One reason it's important to demonstrate the disbelief of the believers is that there is a theory that the disciples stole the body of Jesus to simulate his promised resurrection to keep their religious ideas alive. That isn't true. The believers were totally committed to not believing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They didn't steal the body to promote his resurrection They didn't know where the body was, but they were sure that he was dead. Verse 14, later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. In a moment, Jesus will articulate the great commission that sent the eleven out upon their mission to share the news of his resurrection with the whole world. How interesting, they were given firsthand experience with what it would be like when people disbelieve them. And so they disbelieved the testimony of their Christian brothers and sisters. Just like when they would go out into the world and non-believers would disbelieve their testimony that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so it's kind of an on-the-job training and uh, an immersion training into what life was going to be like. A person's disbelief cannot alter the facts. Jesus is risen from the dead, no matter what people want to say. Now, the 11, along with many of the other first followers of Jesus, were initially foiled by their disbelief of his resurrection. Do you think they should be weeping and cowering in fear? Or do you think that they ought to have been rejoicing and heading to Galilee, where Jesus said he would meet with them after he rose from the dead? They had the word of God that he would rise, given to them repeatedly by Jesus himself. They saw the empty tomb for themselves. They heard eyewitness testimony from credible individuals whom they personally knew to be reliable. Now, I don't think anyone here who's a believer in Jesus Christ has any doubts whatsoever about his resurrection from the dead. We're not foiled by disbelief that he is alive. In all the years I've been a a pastor or even a Christian, I don't know that any Christian has ever said, do you think Jesus is really risen from the dead? I mean, that that seems to be a given. But let me ask you this. Do we ever weep or cower in fear the way the disciples did? Are we always rejoicing and excited about the places where Jesus said he would meet with us, such as in our sorrow and our suffering? I submit to you that there are things we believers disbelieve, or you might say there are things we have a hard time receiving from the Lord. For some, it could be a disbelief that you are saved. Many Protestant churches have regular altar calls, but they are for believers to come forward and receive Jesus over and over and over and over again. It foils a Christian. It hinders you from going on to maturity in the Lord to think that the minute you leave church, you've committed enough sin to lose your salvation and forfeit it and hopefully live long enough till next Sunday when you can come forward again. And so it's, it's, it's a situation where we disbelieve uh, what the Lord has told us about abiding in Him and uh, our salvation. For some, it could be a disbelief that God loves you. There are any number of ways this is manifest, but one is when God allows suffering to invade your life. Satan once said to God concerning Job, he said, stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will surely curse you to your face. Even if you don't go so far as to curse God, too many believers have been stumbled by some suffering in their life or in the lives of those that they love. And though they don't even want to articulate it the way a non-believer would, they're thinking, if God loves me so much, then why am I in this predicament? Why did this have to happen? And they're stumbled and stuck in their walk because they don't believe God's clear promises that he would never leave them or forsake them, that he loves them. And that herein is love that he first loved you while you were yet a sinner and an enemy. Now, this is something a lot of people have come to me with over the years. The, the idea that they are not loved by God. And it's a, it's a disbelief that hinders you. Probably the thing that foils most of us the most is a disbelief in the power of the resurrection. We touched upon this in our last study in the Gospel of Mark. I know this is a problem because of the prevalence in sermons and in books of the promotion of the idea that there are always several things that I must do in order to be able to experience the victorious Christian life. How many times have we been told from the pulpit that there are two things or three things or ten things that we must do as Christians if we want to be victorious? And so Jesus says, I'm going to give you the power of the resurrection via the indwelling Holy Spirit in order to live the Christian life. And then we come along and say, well, then how do I live the Christian life in order to get that power? Let me give you three ways of doing it. And then we have our own preferences depend on what we think we're doing right. Now, Jesus promised to give you God the Holy Spirit as a gift. What do you need in order to earn or deserve a gift. Now, sadly, we promote the idea that gifts must be earned or deserved. I remember a story, I think it was in one of the Little House on the Prairie books. An older child told his younger sibling that there was no Santa Claus. Terrible sin. So the older brother, let's say, told his younger sister that there was no Santa Claus. His parents punished him by giving his younger sibling Christmas gifts and giving him nothing. Boy, did they teach him a lesson about gift giving. You want to get gifts in this family, you need to live up to the hype. Now, so we do. We use gifts to manipulate people. When God talks about gifts, we unfortunately project that attitude upon him. Jesus promised to give and to send God the Holy Spirit to every believer. There are no steps to receiving him. It is all of grace through faith. That means I should believe that I can do all things through Jesus Christ right now without taking any steps. In fact, if there's any steps to take, I have to have this power to enable me to take them. I simply believe Jesus and I appropriate his overcoming power in my life. Now, it's true, I can quench the activity of the Holy Spirit in my life. I can grieve him. He is, after all, a person. But when I realize I've done that, I simply repent, And then I immediately receive his empowering again. The eleven had the word of God that he would rise. They saw the empty tomb. They heard eyewitness testimony from credible individuals whom they personally knew. We have the word of God that he has risen. We see the empty tomb. We have credible testimony from millions throughout the church age that Jesus transforms lives when we are born again. Don't be foiled into any disbelief of what the Word of God promises you, not for any reason. Now, secondly, in verses 15 through 20, is there something following your belief? Now, these last verses, they're also tricky. As a Bible teacher, you find yourself on the defensive. Instead of explaining what they do mean, we spend a lot of time on what they don't mean. You'll see what I mean in just a minute. Verse 15, he said to them, go into the world, all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. This commission may have started with the 11 and the few other followers of Jesus there, but it is binding on every disciple after them. We are to tell the story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus as presented in the Bible everywhere we go to everyone we can. It's actually a very brilliant spiritual strategy. Mathematically, if you lead one person to Jesus Christ each year, then disciple that believer and train him how to do the same with someone else, you end up multiplying yourself. Now, after one year, there are two disciples. At the end of the second year, there are four. Third year, there's eight followers of Jesus. Four years into it, there's only 16. It doesn't sound like much, but let me ask you this. By year 33... If you did this for 33 years, how many believers do you think there would be? 8.5 billion because of how the math starts to work in multiplication. It's a great strategy. Verse 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. This is where it gets tough. And we start explaining what this doesn't mean. We go into long explanations of how this doesn't mean you need to be baptized in order to be saved. Because if you just read the words, it sounds like you need both belief and baptism. So the question for us is, do you need baptism to be saved? And the answer is, yes, you do. But before you leave, or think I've lost my mind, or are happy that this is my last sermon, (laughs) let me explain myself, and I think you will agree with me. Whenever we we, 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 read, I just broke into spontaneous tongues right there. Whenever we read the word baptism, we assume it means the ritual of water baptism. It does not. There are other biblical uses of the same word baptism. Jesus told his followers that they would be baptized by drinking the cup of his suffering. So you would be immersed in his suffering. That certainly isn't water baptism. The Apostle Paul said the Israelites were baptized into Moses. That isn't ritual water baptism either. Most importantly, John the Baptist said of Jesus, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John the Baptist, who was baptizing folks as a ritual in water, was obviously speaking of a different type of baptism altogether. He was talking about what we would have to at least call a spiritual baptism. So let's take a fresh and informed look at the words of verse 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. The baptism in this verse is not water baptism. It is spirit baptism. It is the operation of the spirit that is necessary for salvation. G. Campbell Morgan stated that this way, he said, He who believes is the human condition and is baptized is the divine inward miracle that takes place. In simplified terms, when a person's will is freed by grace to believe the gospel, that person is born again of the Spirit of God. Jesus baptizes that person by the Spirit, and that person has salvation. In his systematic theology, Lewis Sperry Chafer writes, Every believer, the moment he believes in Christ, is regenerated, baptized, indwelt, and sealed by the Holy Spirit for all eternity and then has the duty and privilege of continually being filled for life and service. And so after real spirit baptism, after you're born again, then we practice ritual water baptism to signify and give an outward testimony as to what has occurred in the heart. In the letter James wrote, he says, Even demons believe, but they do not believe to salvation. They're not baptized by the Lord. You can believe but not be saved. You must be born again, born of the Spirit, baptized by Jesus with the Spirit. And so, yes, baptism is necessary for salvation. It is spirit baptism, not water baptism. Water baptism is a commandment that Jesus gave us that we ought to obey, but not as a condition for receiving salvation. Otherwise, salvation would not be of grace, it would be of works. And then he goes on and he says, He who does not believe will be condemned. Eternal conscious punishment in the lake of fire is part of the good news. It cannot be overlooked or understated. People who refuse to believe and are therefore not spirit baptized will be consigned there. Now, how is that good news? Well, for one thing, no one needs to be condemned. Jesus was lifted up on the cross to draw all men to himself, he conquered sin and death and the devil. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to eternal life. He is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. His grace frees the will to enable anyone to believe and be baptized. If you've raised any children, you know that some kids don't care about punishment, but others are terrified of it. And so it's just a part of the gospel that if you believe and are baptized, you'll be saved. But if you don't, there's only one other place for you. And that's a good thing. For another thing, it's good news that one day in the future, believers are going to inherit an eternity characterized by purity and righteousness. Sin will be no more. Death will be no more. No more tears, even. After every opportunity has been given to people to receive Jesus Christ, those who willfully refuse, they're going to be absent from the perfections of heaven. And that's good news for those of us who are in heaven. Do you ever have a bad neighbor? Imagine having a bad neighbor for eternity. I mean, there's not going to be anybody like that in heaven. And so it is, it is good news. It's not good news that people are consigned to the lake of fire. But it's good news that only people who are born again and want to be in heaven are in heaven. It's not good news that people are consigned to the lake of fire. But it's the opposite side of the coin. And, and in sharing it, we're telling them you don't need to be consigned there. That's where you're headed. It was created for the devil and his angels, but that's the only other place for you if you don't receive Christ, by grace, through faith, plus nothing. Just when you thought all the tough commentary was over, here come verses 17 and 18 to challenge you. And these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Let's go really uh, quickly here to Dr. J. Vernon McGee. He commented on these signs and he said this. The infant church needed them. The adult church is not without them. They disappeared even in the early church, but they do manifest themselves on some primitive mission frontiers even today. I think that's somewhat fair. I can live with that as a solid biblical analysis, only I would change it slightly Instead of saying they do manifest themselves on some primitive mission frontiers even today, I would say they do manifest themselves anywhere according to the will and the working of God. And so even McGee says they disappeared, but they manifest themselves. Well, they didn't really disappear then, did they? If they still manifest themselves. And so uh, they do. And, and they just seem to be lesser than they were in the first century, and that's just a fact. It's not because we are all disobedient. I think I'll show you why here in a minute. Let's start with demons. In my name, they will cast out demons. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see almost no demonic possession whatsoever. Then all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene, and there's incredible demonic activity... Demonic possession and the casting out of demons continues into the book of Acts, but not to the extent that it had been when Jesus was on the earth. Then throughout church history, there have been exorcisms right up to the present day. And not only are always on primitive mission frontiers. And so that's just, that's just the honest truth. Nothing really in the Old Testament. Demons like crazy around Jesus, less so in the book of Acts and continuing throughout the church age, but not... Rampant. When Jesus was ministering on the earth, one of Satan's primary strategies was to have his demons possess as many people as possible. He unleashed a veritable army of demons against Jesus. Essentially, he said to God, you want to send your son as a man, the God-man, then I'm going to come at you with all the demons I can muster, possessing all the people I can grab. I think... Uh, You see that easily, but whenever and wherever Jesus encountered demons, he defeated them by casting them out. He could do it if there was one demon possessing a person. He could do it if there were seven demons in a person, like Mary Magdalene. He could do it when there were a legion of demons in a person, like in Gadara. And it made no difference to him. He won every one of those battles without even uh, breaking a sweat. I think Satan has adapted his strategy over the intervening centuries. Instead of having his demons possess vast numbers of people, he has them busy on other assignments, like inventing the Internet. And I'm only half kidding about that. As wonderful as the Internet can be, it is maybe the greatest tool for propagating evil that has ever been created. And uh, those of you who are parents every second of every day you're wondering what your children are looking at or doing on their phones or on the internet whether it's at school or at home and you know that you can't keep them safe it is a terrible evil as well as a wonderful good and so if you're the devil you're not stupid hey let's possess people let's use all of my resources in just possessing as many people as possible no let's invent the internet Let's do some other things that will really ruin people's lives. struck me this week that non-believers read the accounts of demonic possession in the Bible, and they say, oh, it's all undiagnosed mental illness. And then believers come along and say that all modern cases of mental illness are demonic possessions. It's extreme. There is such a thing as mental illness, mental imbalances. Not everybody who sees a psychiatrist is demon-possessed. Not everybody who has a chemical imbalance is demon-possessed. But there is demon possession. It's just obvious there are fewer instances of demonic possession today than there were when Jesus was battling the devil. But if you ever encounter a real case, you have the power to cast out the demon. Now, I have to confess a guilty pleasure to you. I've been watching the Fox show, The Exorcist. It's a remake of Blatty's The Exorcist. And it's compelling, but it's filled with Roman Catholic gobbledygook. (laughs) And you watch these things and you think, man, I left my garlic at home. I don't have any holy water. I don't know the words. I don't have the the prayer book. I mean, if I see a demon, he's going to steamroll me. And then you read the book of Acts, Paul's being followed around by a demon-possessed slave girl, and he says, all right, hey, can you guys wait a minute? Get out of her. Wow, that's awesome. And so um, if you watch those things for fun, just realize that's not how demons operate. And you don't have to know their name. Oh, I hate that. What's your name? You lying demon, what's your name? Well, that's the one thing I'm going to tell you that's true. You got me there. I'm Mephistopheles. (laughs) Then it says they will speak with new tongues. Give me a minute. The Bible distinguishes between tongues and the gift of tongues. Tongues refers to known human languages. The gift of tongues refers to the personal prayer and praise language that is a gift given to some believers. We see the fulfillment of tongues... A fulfillment of it on the day of Pentecost when the 120 disciples gathered in the upper room had the Holy Spirit suddenly and powerfully come upon them. They spoke in other tongues which is then defined for us as the languages that were spoken by all of the various Jews who were in the temple for the feast of Pentecost. And so they heard God being praised in their own native language. This promise... In Mark 16 has nothing to do with the gift of tongues that is defined and described by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians where he says, if you speak in a tongue, you don't speak to men but to God, no one understands you, in the spirit you speak mysteries. The gift of tongues is an unknown language, no one understands it. It's not that you suddenly break out into Sanskrit or Italian or whatever it is. It's an unknown language. Known, uh, in another place, it's called a heavenly language. And so there's a big difference. Now, I can't say how often it happens, but don't you think that if God needed you to speak in a known language you never learned in order to share the gospel, that he could still do that? I'm sure that's happened in the history of the church and maybe will happen again. They will take up serpents, and if they drink any Armona water, it will by no means hurt them. (laughs) If you wrangle snakes and try to poison yourself as a regular part of your service, you're tempting God. You remember Satan took Jesus up to the temple and he, on the pinnacle. He said, throw yourself down because the scripture says God will take care of you. That, and, and Jesus said, yeah, I'm not going to do that because that is tempting God. And so these people who have rattlesnakes and drink poison and survive, they are tempting God. This is not something you go out to do. It's a promise that God can keep you safe from things like poisonous snakes. The one example we do have is Paul, shipwrecked on Malta. He was bitten by a viper, but he showed no signs of its deadly venom. At the same time, Paul had just been shipwrecked. It's therefore not a blanket promise that no harm will ever come to you. It's a promise that God can keep you. Any way he so chooses. They will lay hands on the sick, they will recover. Even among the eleven and on into the book of Acts, the believers could not go around healing everyone. There were times of remarkable healing ministries where everyone did seem to get healed. There were individuals who were healed from time to time and others who weren't. And there were those who grew sick and died, like some in Thessalonica one of the reasons Paul wrote to the Thessalonians was because they had an incomplete knowledge of the return of the Lord and some of them were dying before the rapture and they didn't know what was happening to their loved ones. And so Paul wrote back. He didn't say, did you already lose the handkerchief I left you? That all they have to do is touch it and they'll all be healed. No one should be dying. No, he wrote back and he said, well, here's what happens. Here's the order of things because he thought it was perfectly normal that Christians would get sick and die even though he remarkably had the gift of healings. And so keep this in perspective. The bottom line is, preach the gospel, and whatever God wills, it will follow the preaching. We don't have to go out seeking it. God's in charge of it. But know this. We live in an era where God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. He tells us that. We might prefer a more aggressive strategy of healings and exorcisms. I would love to come into a situation looking for demons to cast out, people to heal, snakes hanging on my arm, drinking Armona water with a cape. Here he comes, Mr. Gospel. But it's not working that way. The Lord has deemed our weakness to be a more powerful testimony in the church age. And so God may say instead, hey, Gene, uh, you're going to have cancer and you're going to live through that. And you're going to endure it patiently. You're going to do it joyfully. And people are going to see that my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Because that other stuff is easy to do. And even when I was alive, it didn't convince almost anybody to believe. See, that's, that's where we as Christians make our mistake. Oh, if we were healing people, if we went down to Adventist Health and cleaned that place out, there would be revival like crazy. There would not. There would just be a bunch of healed people and a closed hospital because they wouldn't have any revenue. But people would still disbelieve, just like with Jesus. How many were left when Jesus rose from the dead? There were 120 in the upper room, maybe a few more scattered about, after he had healed everybody and cast out all the demons he could find. And so don't get get lulled into that, thinking that if we could just have these signs following us, It would bring revival. Just preach the gospel. That's all Jesus is saying. Preach the gospel and things will follow you. Verse 19. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God. They went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Every morning with its new mercies, this is our situation. Jesus, poised to return Disciples tasked with proclaiming his death and resurrection while we patiently endure. Any of these signs can follow you. That's up to the Lord. I trust him to know when a healing is a greater testimony than the patient endurance of suffering by the grace of God. I think we can ask ourselves this question Is there something following our belief? Or we put it this way What do you and I leave behind? Are people encouraged about the Lord when you're done talking with them? Are their burdens lifted? Are they ministered to by the Lord's compassion working through you? Can they at least see the difference Jesus has made in your life? Obviously, the answer to all of those questions should be yes. And they can be an effortless yes as you appreciate and appropriate the gift of the Holy Spirit to live out the life of Jesus Christ.